Did you have enough, Peter? I want to read to you now to show you that we have a biblical basis when we start talking about the moral government of God. And by the way, friends, there are many forms of moral government. By the way, what form is the United States supposed to be? Get what I, I said? Supposed to be. What? That's right, republic. Not a democracy. We're not supposed to be a dem- democracy. is nothing but mob rule. In fact, is you hear some people talk about World War One. They said we fought to make the world safe for democracy. We should have fought to keep it from democracy. Socrates was sure right when he says democracy has within it the seeds of its own destruction. Democracy is a form of moral government. By the way, the kingdom of God is a form of moral government. But that's a monarchy, isn't it? It's not a democracy. No voting in the kingdom of God. Now, the simplest form of moral government that I know of, and God is very vitally interested in, that's the human family. That's the simplest form of moral government. That's why God tells men not to touch another man's family to break it up. You're breaking up a form of moral government there which the boys in that family need and the girls in that family need. So, please follow along Isaiah 9, the 6th and 7th verses. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Consular, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, you can see that this is very, very plainly indicating to us that Jesus is to be the moral governor of the universe and the world, and he's to be your moral governor and my moral governor. There can be no doubt about it. By the way, the phrase kingdom of God is used in the New Testament 100 times. Now, that ought to get it into our head when he says something to us 100 times. That this is a form of moral government. And people who do not like moral government will not like heaven. Of course, you won't get there anyway if you're not going to like it. At least to stay. At least to stay, they won't. Now, please turn your Bibles to Matthew 2. Now, Jesus has just been born, and Herod is worried about his job. And he sends some men over to find out. And let's start, I'll start reading Matthew 2, 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard all these things, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, 
in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, For thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. My dear friends, if you're a saved person tonight, you're an Israelite. Those people over there in Israel today, they're no more Israelites than they're Eskimos. And you don't know your Bible very well unless you, unless you know that. Paul said, who is a Jew? He that has been circumcised outwardly? No, he that has been circumcised in the heart. And by the way, I'll give it to you very, very plainly and simply and maybe a little crudely, but my dignified old pastor used to say it this way. The way to understand circumcision is, in the Old Testament, it was skin. In the New Testament, it's sin. <laughs> so if you've been circumcised in the heart, it's to operate on the sin. So if you have been circumcised in the heart, you're now in spiritual Israel. The only kind of Israel there ever was. So. He says, he shall rule my people Israel. So you see, I'm not taking some sort of a concept here from Shakespeare. I've taken it from the Bible. Now, my dear friends, how many of you are familiar with a word or a phrase or a concept called paradigm, or sometimes pronounced paradigm? I see one, two... All right, good. You're going to get a new word. You're going to get a new concept here. And this will stay with you the rest of your life, I am sure. With the blessing of the Holy Ghost, of course. A paradigm, sometimes pronounced paradigm. P, let me spell it for you. P-A-R-A-D-I-G-M. P-A-R-A-D-I-G-M. Now, a paradigm is a model. It is a grid through which you run things which you have just read or heard to see if they're true. One of the most intellectual persons I've ever known said to me one time at Rockford College, he said, Harry, the finest paradigm of truth I've ever learned in this life is the moral government of God teaching. He says, when I hear things, I run it through that to see if they're true. Like, for instance, now, I'll show you how it can be of great help to you. I know of a man that he teaches. If you are a Christian woman and you're married to an ungodly man and not a saved man, and you have several children, and if he tells you to not go to church, not take his, your children to church, you obey your husband, then God's got to save your husband. Now, that's as terrible a teaching as is possible to do. There's nobody here smart enough to come up with a more erroneous teaching than that. You, you'd have to think for a long Now, let me show you what's wrong with that. First, that robs that woman of religious training, religious fellowship, doesn't it? And God has told us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But yet her husband's doing it, and this man says, you obey your husband. Second, it robs her children of religious training, religious fellowship. Third, it makes an idolater out of her. She's obeying her husband rather than God. If my mother had been like that, I wouldn't be here today. My dad about killed her, not once, but many times. And that's how I knew it was real. See what I mean? She was under new management. That's what I've often said about some of you Christian men. I've said, you get saved, you're going to be under new management. And I don't mean your wife. See? It's going to be changed. 
So that makes a idolatry out of her. But fourth, when he says God's got to save her husband, what does that do to his free will? Evaporates. Fifth, the motive is wrong. See, obey your husband just so God can save him so he won't kick you around then. God, man should be saved because God deserves to be obeyed. For no other reason than that. You wouldn't need any more. Now, I can give you a lot more, but that's, that's one of the most important ones. Not so you can go to heaven when you die. But so you'll obey God now. React and respond to his love and return that love to him now. That's why we ought to be saved. Besides, it's stupid to live in sin anyways, I'm going to show you. And God doesn't like having stupid children running around no more than you do. So, you're going to find that moral government will be the best paradigm of truth you've ever heard. Now, I'm going to explain a paradigm or paradigm to you. I'm going to tell you, because that's an abstract concept, I'm going to bring it down into the concrete. If you were up in Minneapolis at Pillsbury Flour Company, or any place that makes flour, they will bring railroad cars full of wheat up alongside of these mills, and they have a big sheet metal tube made out of sheet metal, about this big in diameter, and they'll suck this wheat out of there way up into these silo-looking affairs, and then they're going to start grinding. But right down near the end, they have a thing they can pull in and out of the line, that's called a de-stoner. Now, what that is, is they pull this out, and they pull it out, and you can see it's a bunch of wires that have been fastened three-quarters of an inch apart in the vertical way. Then, three-quarters of an inch apart horizontally. Now, you've got a bunch of three-quarters squares, haven't you? And wheat's going through there. But if a piece of rock comes about that big, it's not going to go through. Or a piece of manure, which you won't want in your cupcake. <laughs> Or sticks, they get a little careless, and combines pick up all kinds of things, see? All right, then on up about 25, 30 feet, here is another one of these de-stoners, only now the wires are one-half inch apart vertically, one-half inch apart horizontally. Now you got half-inch squares, and anything larger than a half an inch isn't going to get through there, is it? Now... See, that's what a paradigm will do for you. When you hear things, you run it through your paradigm, whatever it is, to see if they're true. Now, my dear friends, the Bible says Satan has come as an angel of light. You're going to find one thing very, very true about Satan. His main realm of endeavor is not Hollywood, not the taverns or debauchery. He's got them. They jumped right in his hip pocket. Satan's main realm of endeavor is in, get this, it's, you won't like this, some of you, theology. In theology. To get us to believe and have wrong concepts about God, to throw up a theological fog between man and God that so that the God-man perceives man doesn't want anything to do with. And by the way, he's by and well, by and large, he has succeeded, hasn't he? Now, that's one of the things I'm going to try to do here today and tomorrow in my lectures, is dispel a lot of that fog. You get down through that fog, you're going to be like Finney when 155 Presbyterian pastors tried to embarrass him, because he didn't read his sermons. 
And they said, why, we understand you can preach within five minutes' notice. You don't even need notes, and you don't need to read. So come on up here, I see you do it. So he went up on this platform in New Lebanon, New York. He stood there for a couple of minutes and prayed, and then he said, Suffer me a little, and I'll ascribe righteousness to my maker. <laughs> then he went ahead to show that everything God has ever done, and anything and everything God has ever done, you can defend it intelligently and intellectually. If you can't, it's because you don't understand why it went on. That all of God's ways are righteous and good all together. When man has something to criticize about the God of the Old Testament, it's because he doesn't understand the God of the Old Testament. Now, dear friends, one of the things I'm praying that God will do here for us today and tomorrow is this. In the 103rd Psalm, the 7th verse, it says, He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. That's what I'm praying he's going to do with us here today and tomorrow. He made known his ways. See, the Israelites, they saw the cloud by day and the fire by night and a man on the ground in the morning. That's about what they knew. Like a lot of people today, they're only interested in the supernatural. Only want the miracles. said he made known his ways. See, Moses was of all men most humble. Now, the first thing about learning truth from God is you've got to learn that he resisteth the proud. He resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace to the lowly. And by the way, you'll also find that most people don't seek any more truth than they're willing to obey. Second, you're going to find that your comprehension of God will be a measure of your consecration to God. Boy, you better put that one in your little pipe and smoke it a little while. Because when I'm driving along, I hear some of these preachers say some of these things. I want to go, ooh, that went right to me like a... Dear Lord, surely you're not like that. And of course he isn't. Of course he isn't. But they haven't been out of school long enough to find out that much of the stuff they learn in school. You see, theology is the only theology you can learn at home in three years. <laughs> well, as an engineer and working in science, we often sit around and we tee-hee and kind of laugh at ourselves as... Some of the things we were taught in engineering schools and in science that we don't believe in anymore at all. But by the way, the best way for you to tell if you're growing in grace is this. Are there things you can't do today without grieving the spirit of the living God that you could have done a year ago and not grieved him because you didn't have light on it then? Get that? And that should be going on in your whole Christian life. So, this subject, the moral government of God, I believe you're going to find. It's a paradigm that is going to help you the rest of your life. Because when I read things, when they take free will away from man, insofar as when he's supposed to be responsible, I say, it's not for me. It's like I heard an evangelist say here recently. I have to agree with him. He said, I will believe in no ideology. I'll believe in no philosophy. I'll believe in no theology that takes accountability and responsibility and free will away from man. Did you get that? He said, I'll believe in no ideology, no philosophy, no theology that takes free will, accountability, and responsibility away from man. And that's a good place to start. And by the way, if you're going away to college pretty soon, I would like to make this suggestion to you, too, that whatever you're taught there, 
You take this blessed book and you shine it on what they teach you to see if that's true. Don't take that and shine it upon this. Because you got the searchlight going the wrong direction. Because the things that we used to teach many times, we don't teach at all anymore. You know that when I escaped from school, <laughs> everything we taught back in that day on astronomy is absolutely useless and worthless today. Absolutely useless and worthless of what we taught in that day. And by the way, there's many, many more things that could be gone into in, in that sense. All right, now, I have right up here two textbooks. In case you think I have manufactured this subject called The Moral Government of God, these were the textbooks at Yale College in the last century. This is Moral Government 1 and 2 by the great N.W. Taylor, Nathaniel W. Taylor, who was a professor of theology at Yale, also the pastor of the First Congregational Church in New Haven. Now, if you think you're an intellectual, I just invite you to start to moving around in these. You'll see if you think that we are more advanced intellectually today than they were back in that day. And by the way, a friend of mine that I consider, and hundreds of men do consider him the top theologian in the world, would tell you that the greatest theological writing ever done in North America, you'd never guess what state they came out of. Hold your hat. And were written by laymen. Tennessee, Kentucky, and West Virginia. And you thought they were still barefooted down there, didn't you? <laughs> and by the way, you know what they were writing on? The moral government of God. This man tells me who has Xeroxed all of that. You can find much of it at Vanderbilt down in Nashville, Tennessee. He says, Harry, it is so ponderous, so profound that most of the preachers today could not understand what those laymen wrote about. And by the way, that was 1790. Along came Mr. Finney, and he wrote a moral government in 1843, and this was N.W. Taylor, and he met N.W. Taylor at Yale, and they were, they were just like this. Now, this is what it means in the Scriptures when it says, no Scripture is a private interpretation. Now, that means, my friend, if you've got some sort of an idea... And you're making a major out of this thing, of interpretation and a certain thing in the Scriptures, and you can't find anybody else in the world that believes that, you better throw it away. Because what God is showing to you, he will show to other people. So that's what is really meant when it says, no Scripture is a private interpretation. Now, that's not what our Catholic friends, the way they interpret that at all. They say, only we priests can interpret. Now, that's not the meaning at all. Like back there in Elijah's day, he thought he was the only one alive, didn't he? But God had 7,000 more. So I just want you to know I have nothing that's new. In fact, this, I've been accused of preaching and teaching a 17th century gospel, and I say, no, it's older than that, it's 1st century. <laughs> older than that, 1st century. Now then, would you please turn the lights out, and we'll get into these slides. As you know, one picture is worth a thousand words, especially my words. And uh, you'll never sleep with this much light on, I know that. 
Now, and some of you are pretty good at it. Some of you. I wouldn't name any names. Uh, now, uh, somebody, honey, would you uh, flick that switch so it'll come on? All right, now, Peter, you're going to sit there with that. Now, I have a book, which I'm going to give to some of you here, called The Moral Government of God. And by the way, 1968 and 69, this book was on the campus down here at the University of Michigan, in Ann Arbor, a friend of mine working with what was called Campus Action. They put out 20,000 copies of this book, and there was only 3,000 in the first printing. But when they came up with the second, third, and fourth printing, the students down there wanted to add that, what you see there. Now, what does this remind you of, dear friends? That's right, the highway. When you're driving up over a hill on a two-lane highway or around a curve, that's what you see, isn't it? On your side of the road. Now, if you're as smart as you're supposed to be, and you're driving that Jaguar, that Duster, that Camaro, maybe you drive a kosher hot rod, that's a Cadillac. (laughs) Or maybe you drive a Hitler's Revenge, that's a Volkswagen. You look at that, and you don't get mad when you look at that. Uh, that is, if you've got all your ball bearings, you don't. You look at that yellow line, and you say, I'm going to stay on my side of the road because that yellow line's for my good. I shouldn't cross over there because people coming around the curb or over the hill, I won't be able to get back and we'll have a wreck. They may be killed. I may be killed. Those riding with me may be hurt. Neither one of us will get the most out of our car. Isn't that right? So, that's the way the moral government of God is. So, you will get the most out of your life. So, you'll have the fulfillment for the real reasons for which God created you. It isn't meant to rob you of any fun or anything good or right or reasonable or intelligent or wholesome. But no, it's so you will fulfill the reasons for which you were created. Such as you have that for your safety, for other people's safety, for your good and that's why that was put there. Now, in, start, in study of moral government, it is really a study of that right up there at the top. And would you believe that 99% of the Christians in America never heard of deontology? They act like that subject only taught on the moon. Well, deontology is a study of rights and wrong. But we live in a day nowadays... And I think I'm qualified to say this, having been a visiting professor and lecturer at about 90 universities, colleges, cemeteries, and Bible schools. Some of them I've been going to for 25, 27 years, and I'm still welcome there, such as Purdue University. I'll be there next month for a week. And I've been doing this now for 25, 27 years there. But in the humanities, here's the way they're teaching. Nothing is absolutely right. Nothing is absolutely wrong, and they're absolutely sure. (laughs) But you see, they'll have an absolute one that will fit their their particular wrinkle or cause or hobby horse. Like, for instance, I tell in my book, The Four Trojan Horses, I said three years ago, now this is when the book book was written back in 77, Three years ago, 400 college presidents met at the University of Wisconsin, and they said, 
We do not believe in any moral absolutes, but we do believe in one absolute, and that's absolute academic freedom. See, they'll believe in an absolute when it fits their purpose. Well, they got something to learn about freedom, I can tell you that, because let me show you something about freedom. Freedom exists only in proportion to wholesome restraint. Freedom without wholesome restraint leads to license. License leads to bondage, and bondage evaporates freedom. You're right back where you started in bondage. Freedom is like mercy. In the Bible, it's a very, very delicate thing to administer, and you'd better know. But we live in a day, dear friends. You see, a hundred years ago, theology was called the queen of sciences. But today, they only mention it in disparagement. I heard a speaker one time from Winona Lake say right over the radio, what the heathen needs is Christ. He doesn't need theology. What he meant was he didn't need his theology. Because <laughs> do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Of course you do. Well, that's theology. That's theology. How can people say the heathen doesn't need? Theology is just a systematic body of truth concerning God. That's what it is. Who says we don't need it? We need it more as much as we need the air we breathe. But my, we've had a lot of stupid statements come up. Especially the liberals are very good at coming out with half-baked things like, oh, you Bible believers, you're trying to legislate morality. I'm on a talk show down in Dallas, and they call in, aren't you trying to legislate morality? I said, would you please tell me what else in this world you can legislate? What else can you legislate but morality? I said, I'm going to tell you, right here tonight in Fort Worth and Dallas, 50,000 you people are going to sleep like babies tonight, that you wouldn't, if you didn't know that we had a law against you stealing and robbing a bank. But you know we got a law, and that means we got sanctions, which means we have consequences. And if you go rob a bank, they're going to put you in jail. And you're not going to sleep tonight. No, I said, you're going to sleep tonight because you didn't rob a bank. Now, you would have if you thought you'd get away with it. So therefore, insofar as robbing a bank, you're moral. You're moral. You didn't do it today. You Now, the thing we cannot do, we cannot legislate morality from a right intention of heart. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can do that. By the way, how we need to get these things out to the world and out on campuses. And let me tell you, if you will learn what I'm going to say here today and tomorrow, you don't need to be afraid I'm on campuses. They haven't done any real serious thinking and studying in the realms in which we're talking about now. Like, for instance, dear old Habit, better known to you as Harvard, came out with a report here about three or four years ago It said, our penal institutions, our penal penitentiaries are a failure. They don't rehabilitate. Thought, for goodness sake, where have you been? <laughs> That's not the purpose of a penitentiary, is rehabilitate. It would be wonderful if we could do it. But now let me show you why penitentiaries cannot rehabilitate. When you put the prefix R-E in front of a word, such as re for resurrection, that's assuming and implying there was life there in the first place. Isn't that right? Now, when you say rehabilitate, that assumes and infers implies it had been habilitated in the first place. Now, if you hire me to habilitate, 
an expedition going to the North Pole. You hired me to habilitate it. That means you have commissioned me to get the equipment to outfit it in a physical way. That means your boots, your parkas, your compass. That means to equip in a physical way. Now, to habilitate your children, that means to equip them in a moral way. This is why God says in Deuteronomy 6, I want you to talk about me and my law when you sit down, when you rise up, when you walk around, you lay down. Now, I don't know any other postures. Now, that's habilitating. Now, how do you expect a jail to habilitate a bunch of, rehabilitate a bunch of criminals that were never habilitated in a church or in a godly home? Now, let me say this. Let's say you do habilitate your children right. That's no guarantee they're going to follow. There's the incipiency of the human will. They can say no to a good influence. They can say yes to it, but it's up to them. They cannot be caused. So they may wind up in some crossbar hotel, for all you know. Better known as the State College at Lansing. We call it the State University at Joliet in Illinois. Now, they wind up in there, and let me tell you, they're just like the prodigal son. You may have taught them right. If you habilitate them, you got a ten to one better chance of getting them rehabilitated because they were habilitated in the first place. You can bring them back to it. See what I'm saying? That's why that prodigal son, what we don't seem to talk about, he had absolute freedom. He had the only place in the Bible. He had the whole pig pen to himself. But here he was in the pig pen, and it says he came to himself. You know what that means? Came to his senses. He remembered back what old mom and daddy had taught him. And he began to do some real thinking for the first time. Hey, those animals back home eat better than I am. But you see, he had been habilitated in the first place. Now, my dear friends, we should not make any alibis or excuses that we're teaching about right and wrong. None. This is, this is right. It's reasonable. It's intelligent. Now, my friends, I have spoken for over 80 different denominations. And when I've had to go home with some people to eat at their houses and move around, I've heard some very, very strange things coming out of some of these people. Especially when it comes to giving. You heard about the, said, well, now we're going to take up our collection today for foreign missions. An old boy sitting down in the second row said, I don't believe in foreign missions. Pastor said, that's all right. This collection's for the heathen, so when it goes by, you take some out. (laughs) (laughs) See, Christianity is a life of giving and forgiving. You show me a person that claims to be a Christian and he doesn't have a forgiving spirit. And you got every reason to wonder why, whether he is or not. And it is a life of giving our time, our love, our consideration, and our money. And by the way, the more you give, the more he'll make it so you can give. Yes, I remember when I used to be a young executive for International Harvester, worked my tail off for that wonderful good company. But my dear, precious mother had taught me to tie. And let me tell you something. My dear, precious wife, by the way, would you stand up, honey? I want them to see who you are. 
if you're still awake back then. <laughs> I dare say a hundred times, she and I have been allowed to give more in a month than Harvester used to pay me in a year. But do you think we started out giving that much? No, we started out in a little two-room apartment and our furniture was early ugly. Well, I hear people that are supposed to be Christian, but they don't have a Christian philosophy. That's bad. That's terrible. And many times it doesn't mean they're not Christians, but sure means they spent four years in the first grade. That'll stunt your growth. All right, now, maybe you can't even spell that word, but do you know you've got a philosophy? Maybe you don't like the subject, but you have a philosophy. Here's what I did. Here's what a philosophy is. Look at it. When in the vernacular, we speak of a man's philosophy, we mean simply the sum of his beliefs. You put your beliefs together, that's your philosophy. Ah, now let's look at the word beliefs. Some of your beliefs. You see, my dear friends, we Americans and English, when they made the King James translation, it really was a copy of the Geneva Bible. But there was no word in the English language for the word which was to be translated from the Greek word pistio, which we now know as the word for belief. So they made a word. They took two Anglo-Saxon words, B-E, which means to live, and leafen, L-I-F-A-N, and put those two words together and we come up with the word belief. Now, if B-E means to live and leafen means in accordance with, to believe in Jesus, what do you think that means? Just to get mental accent? No, to say you believe in Jesus means that you live in accordance with him. And what he hates, you hate. What he loves, you love. What he's trying to do, he loves the poor, you love the poor. If he loves the downtrodden, you love the downtrodden. Two can't walk together unless they be agreed. So now let's look into now the real meaning of this word. Beliefs. Well, what are your beliefs? Here's what your beliefs are. Beliefs are the opinions, convictions, values, and principles that you live by as distinct from those you merely entertain or prefer. Now, let me give you a simple illustration of that. The Bible plainly teaches the Great Commission that the church should go into all the world and get the world evangelized. Isn't that right? Nothing more plain than that. Now, if I'd ask the average congregation tomorrow, how many of you believe in the Great Commission that the church ought to get the world evangelized? Those that are awake would probably raise their hand. I say, all right, now, let's see if you really believe it. Don't answer me out loud, but how much money do you give every month systematically to get the world evangelized? How much time do you spend praying for the missionaries out there to get this world evangelized? How much going? Do you go across the street? You know, friends, when you get filled with the Holy Ghost, you get filled with the Holy Ghost. God doesn't have any stationary disciples, nor does he have any secret service. Because if he did, it's full. 
So if you said, well, I don't give any money to get the world evangelized, I don't spend any time during the day to pray to help the missionaries and to help the poor and the sick and the downtown, I don't spend any time and I don't go, then you don't believe in the Great Commission. See, you just gave mental assent to it. Now, if I was on a parole board, not a parole board, I mean a draft board, and if you came before the draft board and you said you are a conscientious objector and you'd like to have a deferment and be put in a CO camp, I'd say, well, that's a noble thought, young man. Now tell me, where did you get the idea that uh, you should be a conscientious objector? Well, from the Bible, thou shalt not kill. Really, it's thou shalt not murder that. And I say, you really take that literal? Yes. Do you eat meat? You've got to kill it to eat it. Well, let me ask this question. You got it from the Bible. Are you a Christian? Yes. How often do you go to church? Easter and Christmas. How much money do you put in a collection plate when you're there? Oh, two dollars? Hey, tell me more. See, this man is not really a conscientious objector. That's his preference. That also was my preference, too. But some people didn't care. <laughs> you see, the bad thing about today, a lot of people have messed up with people by bringing some bad stuff in. See, I'm a pacifist. But I'm not a pacifist. See, they've been making pacifists out to be pacifists. A pacifist is a person who sits there. You can come in and rob his house, and he sits there, and you can rape his wife. And uh, and then he says, here's the other cheek. (laughs) That's not the meaning of that thing at all. He's not a pacifist. He's a pacifist. Another word for that's coward. Yeah. Now, I'm a pacifist. I won't come and pick a fight with you. Besides, I can't run very fast. But let me tell you, if you come to my house to rape my wife and my daughter, and I'll bend some furniture over your head. I might even put a hole in you. And you'll leak. And by the way, do you know if you come in my house, now get this. If you're really going to study pacifism, you've got to come to this. If you're going to come to my house, and you're going to rob and rape my daughters and my house, and I just sat there and let you do it, I'm a party to it. I'm a party to it. But we're so ill-taught in our day that we can't stand up and answer these fuzzy-headed thinkers back. Now, let me tell you something, dear friends. A hundred years ago, the most intellectual people in the world were Christians. And I think God's going to bring that day back, Brother Bob. So you see what your beliefs really are? They're the attitudes, the principles, the concepts you live by. You just don't merely entertain them or prefer them. Boy, there's a big difference. Ah, here's the best definition of the word moral I've ever been able to come across. Moral means having to do with right and wrong. Now, my dear friends, that's the main presupposition of everything I have to teach. That there are some things in this world that are right to do and some things that are wrong. If we can't agree on that, don't waste your time listening to me. But I'll tell you, if you don't agree with me on that, I'll tell you this. You've been educated away from your common sense. And the purpose of education is not to separate you from your common sense, but it's to sharpen it and develop it. And help it to grow. That's what it's for. 
Now, I told you about a friend of mine that said moral government is the best paradigm he's ever seen. He graduated number two in a class of 750 of Brooklyn College, went on the Ph.D. pro, got his master's from Columbia. Time he's got a professor. And he's teaching, there are no such things as moral absolutes. And he's given quite a lecture. And finally, my friend raised his hand, was acknowledged. He stood up and he said, Professor, are you telling me that there's no such things as moral absolutes? No, nothing's absolutely right. Nothing's absolutely. He said, yes. He said, and the professor was Jewish. He said, how about what Hitler did to the Jews? You know what he said? And you're not going to believe this. He said, if it felt good to Hitler, it was all right. Now, I'll tell you how I could approve it to him. That's not what he believed. I'll tell you why. I'd let two or three of you guys go up there and hold him, and I'd pull up his pants legs, see? And I'd start kicking him in the shins. And he'd say, oh, that's wrong. Don't do that. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's not right. You know why? It's happening to him. Now, I got it out of the abstract down into the concrete. Boy, when it starts happening to us, we can get practical real quick, can't we? It's about time we get this, though. You know why we have a generation gap today? Because the, pre- the teachers have driven a wedge between the students and their parents, and the poor old students are home watching the boob tube and they haven't read anything heavier than my life with bogey. <laughs> they won't even buy a book today if it doesn't have a lot of pictures in it. You know, only 6% of the Americans today read a book a year. And my books don't sell because, oh, you got some words in there, Brother Harry, I never heard of before. I wonder where they've been, on the moon? <laughs> yeah, I, I hear it every, I, I hear it all every day, this week at work. Two women came up to me and said, oh, Brother Harry, your book is hard to read. I said, let me teach you two women something about reading. Anything you can read once and thoroughly understand isn't worth reading. I know things in science I read 32 times before they soaked in to the solid mahogany here. Did you get that? 32. And I was going to stay there until I got it. And you know what I found out when I finally understood it? I found out I was one of six people in the world that understood it. I made about $600,000 lecturing on it. I wouldn't give up. The rest of them act like they knew it. Now, dear friends, let me say this, because we're just getting started. I'm almost through my opening proposition. I said, the only 6% of the Americans read a book a year. That's a sad statistic. Now, even so, reading is not knowing. Memorizing is not knowing either. God's not looking for a bunch of parrots. You don't memorize your way into truth. You better get that straight. Wait a minute. Let's say you do know. Knowing is not understanding. Now, I'll prove it to you. I got the blessed book here in my hand. I have a grasp of this. Now, will you tell me what's going to happen when I release my grasp. Everyone in here can tell me, can't you? What's going to happen? Because of what particular concept in physics is it going, physics is it going to fall? Gravity. Okay? Explain gravity to me. We're here. Knowledge and understanding. 
You see, you knew, you knew about gravity, and that's why it would go down. But when I asked you to explain gravity to me, you couldn't do it. Now you have, that's why I say knowing is not understanding. And that's what we're going to try to get at here the rest of the time. Now, I think we all realize that when we get a little bit honest with ourselves, we all need a moral governor, isn't that right? Now, that moral governor must have some qualifications. About 15 years ago, two men drove out from Chicago, and they had a bunch of flip charts. And they're going to publish these for Sunday school teachers, and bless their hearts, they were going to try to teach theology to kids down in the first, second, and third grade. And by the way, I believe you can do that, assuming you know it. Theology is like teaching a dog. You've got to know more than a dog. So these fellows started through their flip chart and they said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I said, Why? Why? You know what their answer to me was? Because he made us. That's no answer. If we only got to obey God or to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and because he made us, that makes him a tyrant. God is not a tyrant. Now, we need a moral governor, and he must have some qualifications, such as the ability, the competence, disposition to govern, and that's what gives him the right. Do you know anybody else in the universe that has the competence to govern mankind? And has the disposition at the same time? Some men have had the ability to govern little parts of our country, but they didn't have the disposition to. Well, I want, I'm here to tell you, our great God has both. And that's what gives him the right to govern us. Now, why should God govern man? There's some more. By the way, let me say this to you. God never minds anybody asking him an honest why. The fact is, he's delighted for you to ask him honest why. He'll give you answers to every honest why you have. He may make you let you burn the midnight oil for two or three years, then you'll appreciate the answers. But if you just went like this and God, every time you had a question, a week later you wouldn't even remember what you asked him. Isn't that right? And God says, you're going to find my truth when you search for it as you search for hid treasures and as you search and seek for silver. How do you men get silver? Does it grow on trees up here? It's going to work for it. That's what you're doing here tonight. You're paying your tuition. You're working for it. Now, whoo, you a little faster on the trigger there, doctor. Let's get back to this. Why govern? So that we will fulfill our planned relationships, such as a right relationship with God and with our fellow man. That's why God should govern us also. But wait a minute. Why did he make us in the first place? I was poorly taught in this area. I was taught the only reason God made man was to glorify him. Well, if that's true, he sure got cheated. <laughs> and let me say it to you. I realize I'm going to have to stand in front of God for every word I'm saying here. If God only made man to glorify him, that makes God selfish. Our God is not selfish. Let me show you why God created man. I have to show it to you in a in a simple illustration. My wife is a marvelous decorator. And I got the wounds to prove it. You know what I mean by that? Financial wounds. I've seen women come to our house and they'll walk into the living room. Say, oh, look at the blue 
blue tomb walls. Look at that blue Davenport over there. And they just have a tizzy about the way she's had it decorated. She's very good at it. And then they go on in the family room and missionary brothers have given us stuff from all around the world and she's done it very well. And by the way, she's done all this really without much money. See, I'm a Scottish distraction. But I've, I've seen hundreds of women. In fact, is the GAR trotted 700 of them through our house in one day. And these women just have a... By that way, that'll make your house look good. Now, I can look at all that stuff with you women. You have a tissue, but it doesn't do a thing for me. I'll tell you what would do something for me. When I come home from work, I've had people say, have you got one of those automatic garage door openers? I say, yeah, but i got to holler at it. <laughs> well, finally, I bought one. Well, I come into the garage, and now she's over there. She's doing something about getting dinner, and I go over, and she gives me a nice hug and kiss. Then I go on in the, the living room. I'm talking now 10, 15 years ago when our daughters were at home. I go in the living room, and there's my two daughters. They got the evening newspaper all over that floor. One's reading the society page, the other's reading the funnies. So I just go there and I just stand there and I never say a word. Finally, one of them looks up. They say, Daddy's home! Daddy's home! And they come over and they would, I don't know what you know about a track meet, but there's what they call a long jump. <laughs> and these kids would come running toward me and they'd jump and they'd straddle me right here, see, with her legs, and hug and kiss me and two of them hanging on me. We just have a love match. You see what I mean? That's what does something for me. You can have the fancy furniture. You see what I mean? God looked at the sun, the moon, the stars, and all of that out there, and he said it's good, but it had a serious limitation, friends, and here's what it was. It was all obeying the law, cause and effect, and couldn't bless him that much. That much. Just cause and effect. That's nothing but a big erector set to God. He said, now I'll make man. I'll make man get this, and here's why, to share myself with him. But I'll make him so he doesn't have to let me share himself. But when he gets some sense in his little fat head, he will. And then he'll react and respond to my love, and I love him, and God says that he made man for his pleasure. And God's pleasure is to share himself and do good things for man. It isn't he built man to gratify him. Oh, no, don't hang that on to God. I wouldn't hang that on to a fuller brush sales. If you want to make it Amway, that's all right. No, he wanted to share himself. He's great endowments of personality and character. But he wasn't going to make it so they had to. Like with my daughters. But a lot of you people, you think this is the way God does it. Just say I'm sitting home reading the paper. My daughter's got a big plastic doll over there about that big. All at once I hear the thing start up. Comes over there to me and goes, I tell, and I say, honey, did you press the button? Well, haven't you heard people say, oh God, I'm not willing, you make me willing? What are you looking for, a shotgun marriage? No shotgun marriages in the kingdom of God, I'm here to tell you. He doesn't coerce man's will. He doesn't force himself onto anybody. He's a gentleman. But he'll give them truth. So they can see how right and reasonable and intelligent he is to obey him. To turn from our stupid sin. Now, that's why he should govern. 
So we'll fulfill our planned relationship with him and with our fellow man. Now, here's the design purpose of the kingdom of God. This is straight N.W., Brother Bob. N.W. The production of the highest well-being of all. This is why, my dear friends, when you send the gospel to a poor, benighted, ignorant land, you get churches, pretty soon you get schools, don't you? Then you get hospitals. Then you get orphanages. And you get all these things for the good of mankind. Right there it is. The production of the highest well-being of all. But by the way, if you go over there, and I don't care where it is, you go as a missionary, you're going to find out. Boy, it's tough. It's tough. They're not waiting for you, and they're not hungry for the gospel. They love their sins in Africa and Venezuela as much as you love them right up here in Michigan. And they're monsters of iniquity. Just like they are up here. And so you've got to turn them from darkness to light. That means from ignorance to intelligence. To the blessed truth of the gospel. Now, you find it's tough, and it is. So you know what they'll do? Well, it's tough. So you start a bookstore. <laughs> you can be there for a hundred years at that Christian bookstore and never have a church. Well, you start a hospital. You can be there for a hundred years at a hospital and never have a church. You can start a college. You can be there a hundred years and never get a church. Say, can you go out and plant oranges and get an orange? Of course not. You've got to go out and plant an orange tree, then you'll get oranges. And when we take the blessed gospel to these lands and establish churches God's way, then you're going to find the schools and the hospitals, they come from the tree, which is the local churches. And you get the prevention of the highest misery of all. Blackstone said he took 90% of the law from the Bible. Laws prevent misery. So, let's just look at this very briefly. What does it mean to govern? To govern is to direct and control the actions or conduct of substances or creatures so that they will fulfill their planned relationship. Now, I want to pull something here to your attention. Control the actions or conduct. Actions of substances, the conduct of creatures. You get that? How these are together. We're going to see later they're, they're, they're controlled altogether different, different ways. This one will be cause and effect. No cause and effect over here of the human mind. Now, why don't you look at this one, dear friends. Why govern? So we shall live the way we are created or designed to live. God never designed man to live in sin. Sin is unnatural. We were designed, my dear friends, for the throb of holiness. And sin is unnatural. Now, we're going to have a little time of, of uh, we're going to have an intermission here so you can get up and stretch around. I want to give you one illustration before we get back to it. you see where we're going. Over 40 years ago, I was a young executive with International Harvester. I worked in many plants for them. This particular plant I'm referring to, we made tractors. We made two kinds. We made a commercial, which you would call a caterpillar. We'd like to call it caterpillar. That's a trade name. We had to call ours track tractor. Then we made farm tractors also. And, and this particular model, as I remember back, I think we made about 800 a week at this particular model. And by the way, dear friends, with this particular tractor, we had almost no trouble with it. Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, 
fact, 47 of the 48 states, it would run 10 to 15 years with only minor maintenance, like new spark plugs and points, maybe a coil, and change the oil. Have almost no trouble. 10 to 15 years, except in Louisiana, it wouldn't run a month. And we would get a nasty letter from a farmer down there saying, my tractor is still only a month old, it won't run, the engine runs, sets out there in the field and purrs like a kitten, but it can't move. Now, a tractor that can't move is not of much intrinsic value, is it? And they would say, now the teeth are off of these spiral bevels, and, and they won't transmit power without teeth on them, you know. Shouldn't I get a, another set, a free set of these gears? I have a one-year warranty against defective material and workmanship. We'd say, yes, and ship them to them. Now, after you've shipped about four or five sets, you'd think we got a little smart, wouldn't you? The kind of as I look back, I'll show you how smart we were. We remind me the fellow says, when I go over the same bridge three times, I usually figure out I'm lost. <laughs> well, after this thing that went on for a couple of years, we finally sent an old timer down there about my age now. And I got one foot in the grave. I just celebrated the 30th anniversary of my 39th birthday. <laughs> well, we sent Mr. Kirshner down there, boy. Here's an old war horse. They didn't know he was coming. I want to show you the way they were using our tractor in Louisiana. They were pulling turpentine stumps. And they had a chain as long as from the pulpit here back there to that door. They'd tie one end of that chain around the rear end of the tractor and the other end around the turpentine stump. Then the fellow, the farmer, would get it going as fast as he could get it going in the opposite direction of the stump. And then when he got it going as fast as he could, he'd jump off. <laughs> When that thing got to the end of that chain, imagine what happened. There was a mechanical civil war. That's the way we'd call it. See, a tractor is designed for a slow, steady pull, isn't it? That thing would get to the end of the chain and backfire a little bit, and, and the back wheels begin to spin, and the front wheel raise up. We had them designed to 60% of the weight on the front so they wouldn't wind back around and kill the farmers, and thousands of farmers had been killed like that. Well, it would kill the engine. He'd get back on. He'd start it, back it back up to the tree and gain it and turn it about 15 degrees different than what he had before. Get it going as fast as he could get it going. Jump off. He's pulling stumps. I never did figure out how he caught that tractor when he pulled it. You know, when the stump finally came. <laughs> I never did figure that out. I wasn't that smart. But our Mr. Kirshner saw this, and he said, okay, gentlemen, no more free lunch. No more free lunch. You see, we made a crawler-type tractor. We had a winch on the front end. The tractor sold for about 25000 We could put a steel cable around a tree that big and pull it up like you'd pull up an onion. But they were using a $2,000 tractor. When I got to the end of that chain, they're doing that all day long. Now I want to see if you people can really think. Tell me. And I know you can why didn't our tractor run a month? Now, come on, you know, think. What'd you say? He says, wasn't designed to do it. Well, it was designed to pull. But it wasn't designed to do what? To pull like that. Come on, what does somebody else back here say? I'd like to get all of you to participate in this. Come on. Someone else. Well, 
Well, a tractor is not, neither is your car designed for that violent shock loading, was it? Yes. They were abusing, they were misusing the tractor and not using it to be used, as we would say in engineering, under the characteristics for which it's designed. A slow, steady pull. I'm here to tell you, my dear friends, every man and woman, boy and girl today, living in sin is not living the way God designed him to live. And he's headed for the same kind of trouble and problems that they were with our tractor back there. Now, just to close in this particular session, turn in your Bibles to Romans 1. We're going to see this. Romans 1. And what the blessed gospel is trying to do is to get into our heads the intelligence of what God asks us to do and to start living the way we're designed to live. Now, please follow along with me from Romans 1, 29. Romans 1, the 29th verse. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Now look at the next phrase. Without understanding. Now give me another word for a person that's without understanding. Ignorant, but get a little stronger. Stupid, that's it. That's what God is saying about us when we get out into sin. We're stupid. We're stupid. It's not natural. Now, you may go out and do it so many times it becomes natural to you, but then you begin to find out why there's no peace to the wicked. He's violating his design. He keeps on doing these stupid things, and then when his life begins to fall apart, he says, why is God doing this to me? Tell me, what is God doing to him? Nothing. That's it exactly. He doesn't have to do anything to him. Now, let's go ahead. Covenant breakers. That means people who will not keep their word. Now, I've done a lot of house-to-house work, and in Chicago we found out you had to make an average of 14 calls on a home before they'd come to church. They'd tell you 13 times they were coming and didn't. Lie to you right through their teeth. Covenant breakers. Wouldn't keep their word. Now, what's the next? Without natural affection. Now, look at all those we read up there. Whispers, backbiters, haters of God, disobedient to parents, and all this and that. God is saying that's not natural. Now, here's the purpose of the gospel. To get man's mind enlightened as to how stupid and ridiculous and illogical and unphilosophical and unnatural sin is. Get his mind enlightened to that. And get him to look to Jesus and the truth of the blessed gospel. Come to the cross of Christ for forgiveness and transformation. Then live the way he's designed to live. That's the purpose of the God. That's what you call passing from darkness unto what? Light. Jesus said, He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, darkness is a lack of understanding, and light is understanding. Brother, dismiss this section. Come back in 15 minutes if you, if you want more of this tonight. You didn't raise your right hand. Over here are two or three people. Uh, somebody back there was giving them out, but, or have we run out? I'm going to fresh out. I beg your pardon. All right, let's bow in prayer. Brother Peter, would you lead us in prayer for this session? Let's bow pray. Father, we pray that 
Brother Harry shares with us tonight that he would enlighten our hearts and minds that we might understand the word. We realize that understanding will also make us accountable to do what the word says. Father, we just pray that you would help us to live up to what we know we ought to do. We thank you that we have the unspeakable privilege of bringing great joy and happiness to your heart as we live in according to the way you designed it. So, Lord, we're asking your blessing to be upon us and that the Holy Spirit would come and guide us and teach us the truth as we come. In Jesus' name, we commit ourselves now to this session. All right, could we turn the lights out to somebody here? Friends, one of the biggest things we need to get across to this country and this world and the church is sin is not natural to man. He may do it so many times it becomes natural to him, but the consequences of it are terrible. Now, how many of you know anything about a lie detector test? Would you raise your hand? See, not many of you know too much. But let me tell you, the whole basis, the whole principle of a lie detector test is that when you tell a lie, there's going to be a blip on there because even your physical body rebels at it. There's a, an emotional blip that comes up there, which... What you would call that really is a psychosemantic disease. See, that your body is affected by wrong choices that you make. You choose to lie, man, even your body knows it. Now, I'm not saying that a lie detector is an infallible thing, but it's all built on that basis that sin is not natural. Now, you can do something so many times it may become natural, but the consequences are still the same as we're going to see tomorrow. So, I want to get that across, that sin is unnatural. Now, I've been studying a book on law from England, in which they're saying, I wish I had brought the book and read some of the statements to you. You wouldn't believe it because they're saying that all ideas of morality come from people's religion, no matter what the religion is and whether they need it or not. No, if we were taught correctly on God's moral law, we would know that the moral law doesn't come from the mind of God, doesn't come from the will of God, but comes lies within the very nature, the foundation of the way we were created. You see that? Now, let me explain that to you. If I design a tractor for you, if I design a washing machine for you that runs on gasoline... And I give you a little maintenance manual, and I say to you, now, if you want this thing to run right and run the way it should, now, you should put some lubricating oil in there. And I have a reservoir which will hold one gallon. Now, the reason you ever lubricate anything, my dear friends, is so that you keep parts apart. You get that? Because when parts run on each other, no matter how fine a finish they may have, they wear one another. But you have oil to keep parts apart. Now then, if I say to you, you, if you want the most out of this, put oil in it because I insist upon this by virtue of the very nature of the mechanism. You see, I'm not being hard, I'm not being burdensome, I'm not being rigid and insisting you put oil in it, am I? 
But these people who think the Ten Commandments that are hard, they're burdensome, they're oppressive, they're relics of the Old Testament. No, no, no. They're as practical to us today as putting oil in the crankcase of your car is. By virtue of the very nature of the way you are created by God. That's, there's the foundation of the moral government of God. You see, when, and I'm going to get into it tomorrow. When Moses came down from Sinai with a moral law, that did not create our obligation to God or to one another. It merely defined what our obligation to God and one another always had been and always will be. When I meet my precious mother out there in eternity, I am going to love, honor, and cherish her out there like I did here. Why? Because it's right, it's reasonable, it's intelligent, and it's in perfect accord with the way I was created. To respect and love and honor and obey my parents. I'll tell you something. You can put a $500 tailor-made suit on me and I look out, I look like I fell out of the earth, a cab of an earth mover. (laughs) But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you something that did look very, very good on me. You know what it was? I honored my father and my mother. I took care of my mama and my dear wife and I for the last 14 years she lived. I loved, honored, and cherished her. And I want you to know, my friends, that looks good on any man. You know why? Because that's natural. That's natural. So, would you hand me my coat? I want to show you what I mean by this. You see, you know a person... When you see what they desire. Now the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The word glory means a manifested excellency. If you want to know a person, look at what they desire. Now here's a woman. Says, I ain't never had a lesson in sewing and designing, but you can't tell it. You get that? Can't? See? So here's the way that she's made herself a dress. And it hangs on her like this. Toward Murphy's, you know? It's just high on this side, down to here on this side. One sleeve that long, the other sleeve that long. <laughs> Tell me, what do you know about that woman? <laughs> Boy, you know a lot about that woman, don't you? <laughs> now, this is what it means. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The heavens are declaring the manifested excellency of God. You don't know something about our great God, just take a look out. But then, Take a look at your body. This marvelous body that he has given to us. And all these organs in here that to this day in science we have so little understanding of the human anatomy that we sometimes wonder if we should take the name of doctor or the title of doctor. I'm not kidding you. So, you know a person when you see what they design. You know somebody our great God? Look out there. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. But wait a minute. You and I, whatsoever we do, whether we eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So, you know what that means? You and I should live to render God excellent by our conduct and our purpose of life. That's what it means, to live for the glory of God. Live to render him excellent. So, because what? We're made in his image. We're going to really get into that tomorrow in a great way. So I want to get this across. Sin is unnatural. And the foundation of the moral government and the moral law of God lies within the very nature of the way we were created. There's that little trinket we were talking about. I mean, that's a John Deere there. 
Now, we're talking about the government. It means to regulate, to control, but I'm not talking in a physical sense here, and to provide guidance. By the way, I think divine guidance is about the simplest subject in the whole Bible. You know that? The Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. So what's the real problem of divine guidance? Be a good man. And I'll tell you one, something that really blesses me about God's guidance. 90% of his guidance he does in your life, you're not aware he's doing it. That's a wonderful thing. So, when we talk about the moral government of God, we're going to talk about now how does he regulate, how does he control, how does he provide guidance. So again, here's the one we look at very briefly. The government is to direct and control the actions or conduct of substances or creatures so they will fulfill their plan relationships. Now, dear friends, if you will get what's on this slide right here, this will change your life. And change your ideas about God in a, in a wonderful way. This moral government of God, such government cannot be arbitrary, but must be based upon the need for such control or regulation. You know what it means? It must not be arbitrary. First mistake I made this year. You know what arbitrary means? If I say to you, you made an arbitrary decision, that means a decision not founded on an intelligent reason. Now, here's a great thing you want to learn about our great God. Every time he ever does anything, he has a sufficient, intelligent reason behind what he does. By the way, if you get that straight, it'll clean up your prayer life. Because most people's prayer life is not much more than a severe case of the gimmies. By the way, many times, the biggest problem that God has in answering your prayers and my prayers is for him to find a sufficient, intelligent reason why he ought to do that. Because don't forget, he has said seven times, and I'm no respecter of persons. Now, the wonderful thing about prayer, when you meet the conditions of prayer, is it influences an impartial God to become partial. I said influence, not cause. You're not going to cause God to do anything. You'll influence him. I want to say it to you again. When you meet the conditions of answered prayer, prayer can influence an impartial God to become partial. And every time he answers a prayer, that's what he's doing. But he has a sufficient intelligent reason behind what he's doing. Now, let me give you a good example of that. I believe divine healing. I believe it's for today. And I can't ever remember a day in my 38 years of teaching that I didn't believe it was for today. But now watch. If here's setting a fellow over here, 40 years of age, he's not a Christian, now he's got cancer, and all he's ever done is live in his sin and his selfishness, and now he hears a healer's come to town, of course he wants to be healed. Why? So he can live another 40 years in his selfishness and sin. Now, if God heals this man with no great change taking place in him, no enlightenment, no repentance, no, then if God heals that man, God is going to contribute to 40 more years of moral delinquency, and God's not going to do it. God's not going to do it. 
And by the way, dear friends, if you want God to heal you, you better give him some good reasons why. Now, the only good, the only way he can tell that is, you know why when we're going to hire somebody for a big job, we investigate their past so thoroughly? Not that that's infallible, but the only way you can really tell much about a person's future is what did he do in the past. Now, if you have been serving God, been serving him with all of your heart, and he's got a lot more work for you to do, and you get a very serious disease, then you can go to him and this is what it means. You've got the petition. He's got intelligent reasons to heal you. Do you see that? But boy, we want to make sure that we give our blessed Lord intelligent reasons to. Now, that's not to say that sometimes God won't use you men in a village where there's nobody there deserves to be healed, but God's going to heal them sometimes just to show them he's got his stamp of approval upon you and your ministry. But that's an intelligent reason. You see that? That's an intelligent reason. This is why a couple times in the scriptures, twice, said Jesus healed all that came unto him. Not because of any virtue in them, but he was putting the Heavenly Father on exhibition. That's what he was doing. But by the way, he's not doing that now. That's your job, my job. My Bible says, no man has seen God at any time except the Son. He hath declared him. And that word declared is a word in the Greek we get exegete from, which means to unfold, that he has put the Father on exhibition. By the way, that's what we're supposed to do. As my Father sent me, even so send I. Who? What to do? To put Jesus on exhibition. So you only get this straight here, friend. Such government cannot be arbitrary but must be based upon the need for such control or regulation. Now, please follow along as I read this. By government, we mean that arrangement which administers supervision or exercises authority in regulating the actions of something, this may be an inanimate thing here, or being a living creature, either by established laws or pronouncements. Now, that piece of paper which I handed out to you, on one side of it, it has four distinct different realms over which our God governs. Over at the far right, on the inside which says the kingdom of God on the far right, you'll see what I have right here on the slide. This is the first realm over which we're going to look into which God governs. And by the way, dear friends, you must get these straight because I hear these four different realms over which I hear these mixed up and confused in such a way that you come out with a religious mulligan. And by the way, this is a new, I can show you this in theology book of hundreds of years old. And I, I have nothing new, but I'll tell you, this is the kind of knowledge that built this country. A hundred years ago, the Christians knew what we're talking about tonight. They knew these things. All right, now we're going to look into inanimate creation. Now, what does inanimate mean to you? Well, it can mean two things. It usually means non-living. But I've had a lot of engineers that were inanimate. That means non-moving also. <laughs> if you say that's an inanimate object, that can mean the non-moving, non-living object. But what we're talking about now up here is non-living. So, now please follow along as I read this. God in omnipotence. Now the word omnipotence there is one of the most misused words in the English language. Omni means all, and potence means power. 
But we're now speaking of God having all physical power. But that's not the way the Calvinists use it. Did you know that? The Calvinists use it as God and omnipotence can save anybody anywhere, anytime that he wants by overpowering and coercing their will and by irresistible grace. Man, the guy caves in. That's what I call shotgun marriage. No, no, none of those. I can, I can prove it to you. That's not biblical. If that is biblical, then you better take out every one of the whosoever wills may come. And you better take the verse out which says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all men should come to repent. So, in inanimate creation, God in omnipotence holds absolute sway over the vast realm of material creation, producing an adequate cause for every desired effect. God creates by his great omnipotence and exercises perfect control according to his ever-wise benevolence. I am the Lord, there is none else, there is no God besides me. So how does God govern in this realm? Now we are talking about the sun, the moon, the stars, and this earth, every one of the 92 or more natural chemical elements and the 15 or 20 synthetic elements. God governs them the same way we do in physics and chemistry and engineering. How? Cause and effect. God produces a causation He gets the effect every time. There's a big difference between God's cause and effect and our cause and effect. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the concept in physics called the indeterminacy principle, which is what we call on a subatomic level, we may perform an operation eight billion times and it comes out that way, and the eight billionth and one time it doesn't. Which what we're saying is there is a probability in man's cause and effect. But in God's, there isn't any cause and effect because he can control all the variables, whereas we can't. Now, very briefly, I gave you a little bit there about the indeterminacy principle. That is even one-tenth of one percent. But so you won't say that cause and effect always when man's doing it. But when God is, yes, there's no probabilities in his. It's got that. Now, friends, I want to say something about this government. There is one word that characterizes God's government as the inanimate creation. And I want to give that word to you. You ought to write it down. It's the word certainty. Certainty. And in this realm, God always gets what he wants because there's no free will involved here. There's no choice involved here. There's no knowledge on the part of that one being caused. Certainty. Now, when we get over in the realm of the government of free moral action, we're going to see the main characteristic there is uncertainty. God rarely gets what he gets there because he can't cause it, or he won't cause it. So, we're saying here, in the sun, the moon, the stars, and by the way, that's all chemistry, engineering, medicine, physics is, we observe these natural phenomena, and we observe how they go together each time, then we can formulate a physical law. And then we learn if we produce this causation, we get this effect. Through that, we'd have no medicine at all. We'd have no surgery at all. Now, let's see. Very simple. Now, by the way, dear friends, between now and the next ten minutes, you're going to get a very life-liberating thing that's going to hit you. As you can see in our academic circles, they've missed it a country mile. And I know, because I've many times will take a, on a whole college in, in an auditorium, oh, I'm going in these things, and I let any professors at once stand up to debate with me on these. Debate. And by the way, I'm not usually inundated with them either. Now watch. 
Now watch. This is so simple. This is why people miss it. Now I have a table lamp there. And here is a switch up here. Now if I flick this switch in the opposite direction in which it is, I'm going to open the circuit. And electrons only flow through closed circuit. So what's going to happen to the light? Everybody in here knows it's going to go off. Now, what choice did the lamp make? Okay? Didn't make any. What accountability does it have? What responsibility does it have? None, because it is an inanimate, non-living object, isn't it? So the cause is, I open the circuit, the effect is the light. Now, friends, you've got to write this down. That is a physical event. There's nothing moral about that. That's physical. Now, we, we live in a day when the educational circles have, are mixing up moral and physical terms and they are causing nothing but untold chaos and confusion. Now, you watch where we're going. Next slide, please. Now, that slides in backwards, but if the arrow was going the other way, you'd understand. If I turn that spigot, that little handle, I'm releasing the pressure. Is that right? So now the water's going to run all over your floor. Now, ladies, don't go up and stomp and stamp around on the water and get mad at the water and kick it. It's not the water's fault. The cause is here, I have released the pressure, haven't I? The effect is, the water runs all over the floor. It's cause and effect. Now, here's from your simple high school chemistry lab. Here's a flask, or in England they call it floss, beaker, whichever one you want. So we got some water in it. Now we got a Bunsen burner, and we get it lit. And at a certain altitude, at a certain temperature, it's going to what? It's going to boil. That's right. Nine times out of ten. Is that right? Now, what choice, my dear friends, does the water make? What choice? None. That's right. So it's going to boil, and then it's going to make vapor. It's going to go up there and go out and evaporate, and pretty soon that thing is going to be empty, isn't it? We could have put a gooseneck deal and come around and condensed it and brought it back in there, though, couldn't we? Now, we know that those things happen like that because it's physical and there isn't any choice in it. So the cause is the heat coming from here, and the effect is a rise in temperature, and you get a boiling. Now, let's see if you would agree with these statements. Science has boundaries. And we fellows that work in it, we know this. And we admit it. But a lot of people who think they work in science, which isn't science at all, they won't admit it. Science is only concerned with phenomenology. Uh, let me show you what I mean by that. Phenomenology operates through the five senses. If we're conducting an experiment and, and if we can't see it, if we can't touch it, Taste it, hear it, or smell it. We, we can't do anything. We can't do anything. So those right there, these five senses, are the boundaries of science. It cannot go beyond this. And tomorrow we're going to get into what we call noumenal concepts. This is where theology and the things of God take over, where science ha can't say a word. Science can't say a word. Not that we have anything against science, but we recognize its boundaries. This is where theology, the queen of sciences, takes over. 